All right, welcome, my friends, uh, here to the Exxon Burst Podcast. Uh, Scott McClarney and with me, Foss, uh, Schoolman Fawcett. Schoolman Fawcett here for another episode of our podcast, which is Classical Catholic Education in podcast form. We are teachers, and uh, in the case of Scott McClarney, headmaster at the world's only online Chesterton Academy, Chesterton Academy of St. Isidore Learning Center. So, uh, one of the you know classes we offer, obviously, is religion. Uh, because it's not just a classical education, it's a classical Catholic education. And a topic which may come up at one point is going to be the topic of today's podcast. So, Dr. McClarney, you suggested we talk about something. What, what's what been on our mind? What have we been chatting about? St. John the Baptist. St. John the Baptist. Yeah. We've been chatting a bit about him, and we thought we should just turn on the microphone while we have this conversation. And, and why not? And part of the reason, of course, is that uh, his, um, the feast of his birth is, is coming up. Uh, shortly, we thought this might be timely, and it's very rare, in fact, uh, that we'll celebrate the birth of uh, a biblical figure or a saint. Uh, obviously, usually it's their uh, anniversary of their death, and which is their birthday into heaven, the, into the kingdom of God. Uh, whereas, um, even it goes back to even the time of Saint Augustine, they're celebrating the birthday of. John the Baptist. So uh, why? It is a very uh, and why on June twenty fourth? Oh right, a uh, very good question That's actually. So a, a big uh, celebration in uh, the province of Quebec and in, in, in Canada, I and um, huge celebrations, festivities. It's a big holiday, uh, and so and it also marks usually the end of the school year <laughs> and a turning point into summer. But uh, yeah, so why why is this such an important liturgical feast uh, for us? And r- really, um, what does it point us towards? Or uh, the forerunner, Saint John the Baptist. Uh, why why is he such a significant figure in salvation history? So that's Our Lord says, no none born of women is greater than John the Baptist. So he probably deserves some of our attention. So right. we'll just discuss a few topics about him, his role in the Bible. I mean, I'm going to pose a question to Dr. McClarney to see if he has an answer that I've wondered since I was a boy, in fact. I oh, wow. Since I thought it was on. But we'll save it for later. Okay. Right? Sure. Establish some grammar. So where would you like to start about well, this great figure? You, usually I, I like to start with his identity. Who Who is he? So who is he? Uh, now, the first time he is, uh, we find mention of him is actually prior to his birth. So if you remember that episode, uh, this is his father, Zachariah. And, uh, well, you can actually turn there if you're in the Gospel of Luke, if you want to look there. Now, there's different Gospel writers that have different symbols associated with them. You may know that the ox is associated with uh, the Gospel of Luke. And I like to ask students this question, so maybe I'll school my faucet here. Why the ox? Any ideas why the ox? Because there's the well, there's, eagle. There's, there's the, cheap, for, okay, yeah, the, the cheap answer is because Ezekiel has four beasts. And... They must have symbolized something. So yeah, they're the four which which then are um, brought in into the Book of Revelation. So 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 the four beasts in Ezekiel, yes, uh, uh, reappear in Book of Revelation. But yeah, okay, sure, sure. okay. It's, it's apocal- yeah, apocalyptic. Yes, okay. Uh, well, you know, it's always struck me that that's also how Thomas Aquinas was described, right? The dumb ox. <laughs> right? Yes, yes. Uh, and you know, Chester I mean, there's a host of reasons. I mean, of course, it's because he was a big, stocky, quiet yeah. guy. Uh, yeah. But there's other layers to this too. You know. St. Albert the Great said he would plow the world. Chesterton says, you know, one of the meanings is that just like an ox goes up and down the field thoroughly, line by line. Okay. Uh, that's also Aquinas. He's very thorough, right? Oh, right, like right. Up and down, up yes. and down, thorough, not one okay. stone left unturned. Yeah. Um, 
Well, Luke, I supposed to be the uh, the gospel, but the evangelist who comes closest to that, right? I'm going to lay everything out in an orderly fashion, right from okay. the beginning, That's, right? Yeah. So, in the same way, I mean, I sort of tend to think he's the most um, chronologically precise of any of them, like the most most of a historian of any of them. Sure. Um, you know, he's the most thorough. You know, you get the sense he interviewed yep. a bunch of people, right? Uh, yes. You, you sort of wonder if it was like. A, <laughs> I don't know. People were panicking. Oh, people are starting to die. Look, you got to interview all of them. Get an oral history of all of this before they're all gone. So that may be one reason why Luke was yeah, uh, is yeah. associated right with the bull. Or yeah, box, yeah. It's, you know? it's, that's a good guess. It's a good guess because I think like the eagle is obviously with um, the Gospel of John, and one of the reasons is because well, it gives a God's eye view uh, in the opening lines of the the Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, right? It's yes. this cosmic view, God's eye view. So an eagle. Matthew's Gospel opens with this lengthy genealogy. So usually he has the face of a human or an angel, a human with wings, and it's reminding us of Jesus' human identity. Mark is the lion because 11 or so verses into it, uh, the heavens are being ripped open and uh, uh, Jesus is unleashed yeah. uh, onto the terrain. It's bigger and dynamism. It yeah, and probably reflects Mark's personality. And immediately, right? And, and there there he goes. Uh, so the... Um, the animals are also a heuristic device. Help us to remember how the Gospels begin and uh, it points to its important themes. In them. So the ox is a reminder that Luke's Gospel opens in the temple because mm. that is the location where a sacrifice uh, daily would happen in the morning and the evening. Uh, and so ritual animal sacrifice. And so the ox uh, is associated. And here if, in Luke is... Um, School and Foster just mentioned is seeking to make an orderly account. Uh, he's going to make a um, for the word in Greek is a catechesis, uh, a catechetical document for us. Uh, but in any case, as you, if you're familiar with the story, there's going to be John the Baptist's father who appears, and this is an amazing scene because I liken this to Game Seven of the Stanley Cup. The net's wide open. I think we talked about this before. Zachariah, all he has to do is. is Tap the puck in, and, and there he goes. They win. Uh, all he has to do is say yes, to Angel Gabriel, but uh, it doesn't quite take place. Um, nonetheless, when his lips are unsealed, he then has this beautiful canticle, which he prophesies uh, about his prophetic son. Uh, and he tells us some really interesting things about who uh, he will be. So if you're um, if you're there, uh, first of all, he's going. This is uh, verse 67 or so of um, chapter one. He starts with a, a prayer. It's called the Baraka. He's blessing the Lord, the God of Israel, and this um, uh, from. Uh, formula of, of blessing God and then saying what he has done about raising up his servant uh, David speaking through the holy prophets of old protecting people from uh, their enemies uh, talking back uh, uh, hearkening back to Abraham and then verse 76 he's talking about his child right uh, will be the prophet uh, so this is a prophecy about the prophet uh, and not just any prophet but the prophet of the Lord uh, the Lord most high yeah, and he will go in the way, uh, what does he say? Yes, yes, uh, prepare the ways of the Lord. Yes. So he'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways and uh, forgiving their sins, uh, right? Uh, and bringing them, the people, to knowledge of salvation. Uh, all right. And, and ultimately, this is going to guide the people into the paths 
of peace or their feet on paths of peace, which is a, a trope, a motif we see within a book of Proverbs and elsewhere, where the where your feet are moving uh, is really indication of your moral rectitude and by extension, your covenantal relationship with the Lord, the Most High. All right, so that's the terrain, or that, at least that's the stage in which it's set. Now, uh, the Gospels are about Jesus, of course. So that he's going to take prime, he's going to take center stage. But John the Baptist is going to show up again in a couple chapters, and of course, familiar with the. Uh, uh, um, baptism scenes, which we just alluded to, uh, that's where John the Baptist shows up again. Now, there are questions that people have about who John is, his identity, and perhaps it's useful to pause right now and, and step back from the gospel and ask, what is the climate? What is the scene in which John the Baptist appears, and then uh, who's the forerunner, and then our Lord? Uh, and when he appears, what are people expecting? Uh, exactly. There, it's it's um, a tumultuous time. Let's go and foster any ideas here. What, what, how would how would we characterize the the political religious climate? Those two go hand in hand together. Hmm. Well, although there's been a return from exile, a seeming fulfillment of the prophetic promise yep. right, that the exile would be undone. Uh, there's still a deep sort of dissatisfaction and unhappiness. Yes. We spoke about this before. It's even reflected yes. in the prophets. Uh, yes. Haggai, right? Yes. Where people are weeping because this new temple is pales in comparison to Solomon's temple. Uh, and of course, they're still, they may not be in Babylon, uh, but they're still under the dominion, they're still under the thumb of a big, powerful empire, which in some ways, uh, if, you know, if Babylon was the golden empire, this is the iron empire. Right? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah. And there's not... There, so there's still great anticipation. You know, there's a dissatisfaction there. Yeah, yeah. very good, excellent. And and here in particular, if we're going with the anticipation and dissatisfaction idea, how does the Old Testament end? So what's the last book in the Old Testament? Oh, that's a loaded question. It is. It's kind of a trick. There's a this is a trick yeah. question. But okay, the, in the version that you have there, that translation you have in front of you, what's the last book? Of the um, and if you have your Bible at home, you can you can go and check, and it actually will vary depending on your translation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Malachi is yes. The one I okay, so now Malachi is not the last book of the Septuagint, but it is the last book in um, the uh, Tanakh, uh, the 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 Jewish uh, the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, so let's just turn to Malachi, uh, and this is this gives us a sense of how. Uh, Oh, excuse me. No, I, I could correct myself there. It's not the last book in the Tanakh, because in the Tanakh, the prophets come in the middle. It's the writings that come at the end. But he is the last of the minor prophets. Now, they're minor, not because they're unimportant. The reason why they're called minor as opposed to major is the majors just wrote more. <laughs> so their scrolls were longer, like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Those are not more important necessarily. They just wrote more. Uh, all right. So the, he's the last in the line of prophets. And this is how the, the Bible at one point ended. Um, all right, so this is, um, it speaks, now some translations have only three chapters or four, the same verse is just the divisions are slightly different. So go to the chapter three at the beginning, uh, verse one. It says, see, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. Well, that sounds familiar. That's almost what Zechariah just said, uh, right? Uh, and if you read a little more, you will see come, uh, suddenly he will come to his temple. The messenger, uh, 
of the covenant. So it's not just any ordinary messenger, but covenant. And that's important because covenants go back uh, throughout the, the Bible. Some, some will even see some in, in Eden, but certainly when we get to Abraham, or sorry, Noah, and then Abraham, um, Moses, David, and so on, the covenants are integral to Israel's identity and our relationship to God. So he's going to be not just any ordinary messenger of God, but he's one um, who will, uh, he's the messenger of the covenant. Uh, right, okay. Uh, and it's a hint as to, uh, this is the end of the Old Testament. We're going to have a new covenant that's coming up. All right, uh, the messenger of the covenant. So this is Malachi again. Uh, right, uh, whom you delight. Indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? So this is his epiphany, his manifestation. All right. This is going to not be for the... Uh, um, you're going to need some, uh, some preparation here. Uh, deep roots, perhaps. And this is where you get this uh, beautiful language of a refiner's fire. Uh, and you'll be a purifier of silver, Levi's, uh, uh, descendants and so on and this is like you know that, that uh, famous song uh, refiner's fire right uh, and, and so this is this is where it comes from uh, and, and it says that uh, verse 4 then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing before the Lord as in the days of old in the former years now um, this is the um, renewal of this relationship between God and Israel this covenant is going to be renewed and this messenger is going to be there when this happens appearing in the temple uh, now, if we go down a little further, uh, it, it, let's just scroll down to verse uh, chapter 4. Uh, there you'll see, see the day is coming, so it's still in the way, burning like an oven. Now, this is the purification, this, this cataclysmic apocalyptic language that we see here. When all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble, the, the day of the Lord uh, comes, they shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. Ah, so they'll never leave root nor branch. So this is like a consuming, sweeping fire that's going to overtake. And um, uh, whatever is less, uh, well, this is what will happen. Uh, but you will revere my name. The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. So from this apocalyptic language is great healing and hope. Uh, right. Uh, with with uh, You shall go out leaping like cows from the stall. Yes. Uh, and you'll tread down the wicked, and they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. Now that probably is reminiscent a little bit of uh, Genesis, uh, right? Uh, the notion of ashes, uh, treading. Uh, on uh, uh, down uh, on the soles of your feet, the, the, the crushing of the serpent, which is prophesy uh, a prophecy from uh, Genesis uh, three eighteen. Uh, all right, and um, yes, so this is the Lord of Hosts on that day, on that day. So that Himera, uh, uh, they were in Greek there for a day, but it's on that day, the day of the Lord. Yeah, okay, uh, okay. Now uh, here, this is this is fascinating. How so? This is how it ends. Verse four. Uh, Remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statutes of the ordinances that I command him at Horeb for all of Israel. Now, why that? That that's the last lines of Deuteronomy. Really, it's, it's called, recalling the end of the Mosaic covenant, which is the definitive covenant that they're aware of at the time. So, going back to this, this is kind of the the idea. Now, uh, verse 5. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah. Hmm. Okay, that's very interesting. So, there's word about Moses in the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, if you remember, at the end of Deuteronomy 34, there's mention that no one in Israel has yet arisen 
who's like Moses. And, and, and they're waiting for that, the prophet. Uh, uh, so as it ends, then there's Elijah, who's perhaps the greatest prophet, but he's not quite the same as Moses. All right, in any case, um, he, he's, he's going to make mention of him, right? Before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of parents to their children, the hearts of children to their parents. So I will not come and strike the land with a curse. And so this renewal, this interior, uh, the interiority of the individual, and so returning the, the sons to their fathers, right? Um, and the idea here is that this is a, an analogy of this right relationship between uh, kids and their parents. Analogy for Israel and the Lord, uh, right? So this this is a, a great renewal that's expected. Now, uh, you probably have a footnote at the end of Malachi, because there's a number of rabbis who inserted a verse after this because they didn't want the Bible to end with a curse. How could you end it like that? So they repeat verse uh, 4, uh, and that uh, remember Moses, right, in the teachings from Horeb. So just, uh, do, you know, you don't want to end on like on a bad note, right? A sour note. So that's how it ends. And there's this anticipation of this day of the Lord when um, uh, uh, Elijah will return. All right. Um, that's the stage. Now, Judaism in Jesus' time was pluriform. That means there was a number of different movements. You, you're from, I'm sure if you've read the New Testament, you're going to be familiar with some of them. For instance, the Sadducees. Uh, who are very conservative. They only follow the first five books of the Bible. Uh, there's the Pharisees, much more... The Sadducees were more aristocratic, priestly. Sad, uh, Pharisees, uh, rather, were... Um, in contrast, were lay people who were very dynamic, very immersed in the scriptures, but they they weren't necessarily priestly. And um, they, their, their way of... Um, uh, adherence was different than the Sadducees. So that's, you know, how you get that 613 laws. Uh, that's actually not the Sadducees. That's the Pharisees. They believed in an oral Torah as well as a written one. So this is, that's, that's another group. Uh, there's another group uh, called the Zealots. The Zealots are the um, militants who, who want to advocate a uh, violent overthrow of, uh, and restoration uh, of, of, of Israel. This is the origin of the term Zealot. Like, this isn't like, oh, <laughs> yeah. they, they happen to be called zealots because of yeah. how zealous they were. I mean, this is actually the etymology of that word zealot. It's a and like cynic or skeptic or stoic, you know, these originally were schools of thought. So yeah. the same with, uh, same with zealot. Zealot originally referred specifically to this group, you know, who... Right. And, and it, they, they could blend a little bit. So you could have a Pharisee. Who, who who appeals to the zealots? Zealots were more the the means of which they're going, as opposed to you know the Pharisees and Sadducees had doctrinal, very dogmatic differences and even scriptural differences on what's canon. So, for instance, Saint Paul will say he was more zealous for his ancestral traditions. So he tells us in Galatians. So he's also a Pharisee who's zealous, and that's we can see the violence that he's ready to use. Well, that's the zealotry yeah. coming out in him. Some of Jesus' own followers were also zealots, too. He had a very eclectic group of, of, of uh, the twelve, right? Uh, now, there's a fourth philosophy. This is according to Josephus, a Jewish historian, and they are called the Essenes. So maybe I will make more mention of the Essenes perhaps as we go, but uh, they are a fascinating group. They have two different branches. Uh, one, they, they kind of the... Um, 
uh, I don't call them the elites or the 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 um, they they were the ones who lived celibate lives out in the wilderness. They shared things in common. They um, like monastics. Monastic life. Yeah. Um, some ancient people would. Uh, uh, compare them to the followers of Pythagoras, who who went you know to uh, Italy and uh, for, formed their own boundary. They call it in Greek. That was the term. Was uh, they they formed their own uh, 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 perimeter uh, where they would make their own group and uh, live almost a monastic type of life. So uh, that that's how they lived. Um, s uh, Epicureans and, and others would attempt to do something similar on different occasions. But this is the the Jewish example of uh, with with them. All right, so those are the Essenes. Uh, long initiation period as well with the Essenes. So if you want to be fully initiated, you have to wear um, certain, they wore certain colors, uh, usually white, uh, and a year or two of initiation before you're drawn into the community because they, they wouldn't um, replicate themselves necessarily. Now, they did have other members who went out who weren't living in the monastic lifestyle, and they would live in different towns and so on. Uh, but the, the, that's uh, another group there. All right, that's a bit of the stage in which we see John the Baptist uh, emerging from. So let's let's take a look. Um, John's Gospel, I think, is a good example. So go to John's Gospel, if you go to chapter 1, and we can see all the people who are coming out from Jerusalem. So this is the, the Gospel of the Eagle. And what's interesting is, in the opening um, prologue, we see John the Baptist even showing up. I think it's verse four, uh, which which there's some interesting things going on there. Uh, sorry, no, it's verse six. There was a man from God. So this is uh, whose name was John, and he came as uh, to witness to, to testify to the light. Uh, very interesting that this would show up in the middle of the prologue, because the prologue is this elaborate poem, uh, and it's almost like this interruption. In, 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 the, in the prologue of the word uh, of, uh, of all time, who's now entering in. So it's very, very interesting when you connect this, say, to Luke's gospel, where you have the canticle of Zechariah and Mary, uh, who are paralleling each other. Well, here you have the canticle of the, the prologue of the word, and even John the Baptist is showing up in here. All right, um, now let's go down to verse 19 of chapter 1. So you see Levites and priests who come from Jerusalem, and they're asking, who are you? Now, Levite was meant Levi was mentioned in Malachi. So just to clarify for our listeners, why is Levi kind of associated mentioned here in associated with the temple um, and, and priests? So Eskimo Fawcett, any guesses there on that one? Like oh, what, what's Cyrus, there may be a whole book of the Bible on this topic oh, um, yeah. called the Leviticus, oh, right. Right, okay. uh, which is all the prescriptions for the priests. Uh, mm. Right, all the all the liturgical and I guess we could say sacramental rules, all the temple rules yep. for the priests found in the book of Leviticus. Yeah, because uh, that they are the, it's the priestly tribe. That's why they had this kind of special um, status among the twelve tribes. Um, the, the allotment of uh, their inheritance was different. We could say than yep. the other exactly. Tribes. Yep. Yeah. yep. So they uh, they weren't associated with any particular um, geographical area, but spread out, and so they. Um, and part of the role is to function as priests. So not always, uh, but uh, most often, they, uh, they, they, um, well, they, they performed this, this priestly function for, for um, in Israel. So for instance, uh, with when it comes to um, the sacrificial system, they have this particular role. And so with the temple, it's uh, 
Very important then that the sons of Levi are the ones who are purified as these ministers within the temple. All right. So in any case, uh, here it is: the Levites and priests. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, say they are sent uh, this, right from Jerusalem to ask him. So they might be busy ministering in the temple. So they send emissaries to go and ask these questions. Now these questions are very informative, uh, both about who John the Baptist is and uh, who Jesus is as well. So uh, the first question is. Who are you? So they want to know, it's a question of identity. And he confessed and didn't deny it, but confessed, first of all, I'm not the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. We've, I think we talked about this term in the past, but it's a, it's a good negative definition. So he's first going to say who he's not. Uh, all right. So first of all, I'm not the Christ. Okay. Uh, all right. Then um, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And what does he say? I am not. Now, why would they ask him, are you Elijah? Well, well um, the book of Malachi had left everybody on that notice yeah. suspense, for one thing. Um, Malachi, that Elijah was going to return. Of course, the way Elijah departs already leaves a certain amount of mystery, right? Being caught up into the, the fiery chariot. Yeah. The sweet um, chariot, swing high, yeah, swing, swing low. Swing low, sweet chariot, yeah. Come um, carry me home, yeah. And, uh, and, of course, even that was embodied in the Passover ritual. Yes. Uh, the fourth cup out for Elijah because he could show up at any time. Right. Uh, now, why uh, was there anything about John specifically that maybe suggested he might have been Elijah? Well, it, that's part of the question that they're asking, right? Because he's out in the wilderness, right? We, he's, he's preaching this baptism of repentance. Um, so yeah, that's this. And how does he look? Uh, okay, well, let, does, uh, does, um, I, I think that's think, in Luke, yeah. yeah Luke and Matthew. The gospel doesn't even mention it here, yeah. Yes, but. so he's wearing uh, camel clothing, camel hair, uh, clothing made of camel hair. Uh, and, and so he has a leather belt as well. Um, and his diet is locusts and honey. So, very curious. And now, uh, most insects are not kosher. Uh, locusts happen to be kosher, so that's fine. You cannot eat bees. But you can eat honey. So honey's kosher, but bees are not. So he's eating locusts and honey. Uh, so kosher diet. Uh, but it's an alternative, uh, not not practice, um, very organic, very uh, high in protein. But he's acting like Elijah, doing weird things, being out in the woods, uh, being out in the wilderness, dressing in uh, prophetic garb. It's not. It's worth noting. This is not just Elijah's garb. It mentions in Zechariah chapter thirteen, verse four, that like prophets in general. Uh, you know, on that this, on that day, prophets will be ashamed, every one of them, of their visions when they prophesy. They will not put on a hairy mantle in order to deceive. Uh, so it seems like prophets, even false yeah. prophets, were known to dress up in like hairy mantles, yeah. look like Elijah. So it was kind of like, a, you know, nowadays if you want to be mistaken for a priest, you put on the collar. Oh, right, right. Like, this is almost like the prophetic um, garb or something. The prophetic yeah, yeah. uniform is to sort yeah. of dress like Elijah. He, so. he probably had a long beard, too, I'm guessing. I can only imagine, yeah. I don't know if he would want to just scrape himself with the rocks out there <laughs> or, uh, you know, clean, clean that off with what was left of the locusts. But anyway, yeah, yeah. So he seems like a reasonable enough candidate to yeah. be Elijah, right? He seems to pre preach with power, and but he says he's not Elijah. Yeah. Okay, and then, so what's his answer? So what does he say? Um, I baptize with water among the stands, one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me, I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. Um, and uh, let's um, go to another gospel. I want to get more on that because uh, here we have, we have more. Uh, Luke captures a little bit more of what he says there. Uh, so if we go to Luke chapter 3, uh, when, when he's talking about... Uh, 
his baptism with with fire and water and what's and what's to come uh that um that is helpful. All right. So if we go down to, uh, well, more or less the same place, verse 7 of chapter 3, uh, he says this. These are the crowds. Okay. And uh, remember, people are coming out to ask him these types of questions. He says, you brood of vipers. Right. Who warned you to flee uh, from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance, not begin to save yourselves. Now, okay, we have Abraham as our ancestor, so and you know God can raise up from these stones. Uh, but here, this is the image he leaves with. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Now, you know how you have a golf swing? Uh, you, 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 you tee up your, your uh, club right, right before the ball, and you take a few practice swings, right, before you're actually going to swing. And that's what he's saying. The axe is at the root. It's, it's, it's just before it's about to swing. So there it is. It's, it's just getting ready. All right. Um, yes. Yeah, so, uh, and what does he say? Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Now, this sounds a lot like Malachi. Yeah. Does it not? Yeah. Okay. So, so the uh, root and stubble, this will be consumed. Uh, whatever is, is, is left will be purified. This, this is a fiery... Um, uh, uh, vision that, that John the Baptist is offering. But he's leaving the door open, is he not? He's not shutting the door on them. Yeah, I suppose we appreciate that, right? Uh, because if you go down a little further, just the next line, well, people are like, okay, hang on. If that's the case, John, what are we to do? And, and so he gives them some advice. You know, you got two cloaks, well, I'll share one, right? Then look who asks him a question. The tax collectors. Now that's that's flooring. That it, it's one thing for the priests and Levites to send emissaries uh, because they're already ostensibly trying to live out the covenant as, as best as possible. The taxpayers, by co by contrast, no, <laughs> they're really falling short of living out the covenant. And why? So what's what's with tax collecting? Why would why would they be a a, a group which uh, all sorts of question marks over there lurking over them? Sure. Well, it's like what we said before about being a collaborator with, with being under the, the thumb of Babylon, right? Like yeah. these are the people who are extorting uh, the people. Well, first of all, who likes tax collectors anyway? Like, yeah. You yeah. really need to contextualize it and all that. Much. <laughs> yeah. but what was it about this society specifically? People yeah. didn't like paying taxes. Well. <laughs> I yeah, don't know sure, that. Sure. However, in this context, there yeah. is also that sense of this pagan, idolatrous, yeah. anti-God force that's holding God's people under suppression um, and putting up idols, you know, your standards that have idolatrous images uh, Exactly. On them. And, and when the Roman legions were funded by the taxpayers, uh, come, they bring their standard of the eagle, mm -hmm. right, and sacrifice before that eagle mm -hmm. uh, when they conquer an area and so forth. So if you're funding them, chances are you're promoting this. Uh, at least you'll have some sort of a, a, a heartstrings being pulled there. It's like, okay, I'm not sure if I'm really supporting uh, the covenant here or not. Another thing is that back then, tax collecting was done on commission and you had to uh, bid on it. So if you're a tax collector, you would bid on a certain geographical area that you would go in and collect taxes and front the money to Rome. So say I want a canvas for all of uh, the Edmonton region, right? Oh, let's just do the Southwest Quadrant. Okay, so I'm doing the Southwest Quadrant. I would pay all the money up front, 
okay, to the government, then they would give me the license and then I could go door to door collecting the taxes. If I took a little bit more, well, the government doesn't really care too much. They've already got their share. So now it's up to me. Now you can obviously see tax collectors aren't popular already. They would be even less popular than knowing people, uh, people knowing that they work on commission and take more probably for their own than, than is needed. And that's why John tells them, quit your job and stop helping the Romans altogether and become a, an ascetic in the desert like me, right? That's yeah. how John answers. Well, you might expect him to say that. That's perhaps maybe how the Essings might answer. Uh, but or that's, the Zealots. Or the Zealots. Well, the Zealots, yeah, they, they would. Quit that and pick up a sword and start, yeah. you know. Well, the Zealots are probably more uh, quicker into um, assassination and so forth. There's one group of Zealots called the Sicarii who yes. they, they would they would hide daggers yeah. in their cloaks. Their daggers are known as Sicarii. And so then they would just uh, get whoever they was collaborating with Rome in the crowd and then melt back into the crowd before they're gone. So, so yeah, that'd be, I don't know if they would bother so much with, with <laughs> sure, all this sure. inter in questions and in in integrity. Uh, interrogation but in any case um, no so his john the baptist's answer is also flooring um not just that he's entertaining tax collectors but he tells them don't collect more than you need right and the you'll see jesus obviously uh, will say render unto caesar what is caesar's uh taking things to a different level but this is this is the line in which john is, is seeing things from his his purview now who's next well it's not just the people funding the the oppressor it's the soldiers themselves start asking the questions uh right uh, what should we do and something similar don't extort people right uh, um don't take money by threats or false accusations uh, this is, this is what, he doesn't say you know don't engage in mass slaughter right, <laughs> right? Yeah, he just yeah. says don't extort people don't don't i think the greek is like, don't literally don't shake them down Okay. Um, which is, you know, an idiom we still have in English. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Very fascinating. So this is, I mean, this is, um, he's so radical that he almost comes around to being, he's, he's too radical for the radicals. Right. Right, John yes. Baptist. Yes. And he's so revolutionary. He's so otherworldly. I mean, initially he seems otherworldly because he's, you know, out in the desert and he's not an uh, establishment figure, right? He's like a crazy hippie or something. Or, yeah. But then when it comes to opposing the empire. Yeah. He's too radical for the radical. He's too He's so revolutionary that is, how revolutionary is that? You can be part of Rome, and there's still hope for you. Yeah, right? I wondered. I this is a thought just came to me. Would you think this would be almost like, um, say, an underground uh, priest or or church official in, say, Soviet Russia, where where a communist official comes and asks him, "Hey, what should I do?" Sure. Right. So instead of saying, "Hey," You got to quit your job and and join me in the sure. underground church. He he's reforming him. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, you're talking to somebody who lives in a communist country, right? I mean, that's, this is exactly a question that might come up, right? Do I do I quit the party or not? Right? Yes. Um, yeah. And of course, as we get, I mean, the New Testament and Acts has a certain ambivalence about what you do. I mean, if you're Theophilus. Yes. Do, you, do you lose yeah. your status if you become a Christian? But here we're just focusing on this. I mean, what a uh, almost inexplicable figure John the Baptist is already, especially yeah. for a figure who's supposed to be sort of ushering in Malachi's apocalypse, where the right. whole, you know, everything's supposed to be purified by fire. You're right? going to have to get rid of the Roman ar armies. Uh, most, that, was, that was the general expectation, at least. Uh, and, and this doesn't seem what he's, yeah, mm -hmm. saying here. Uh, Which may be why he follows that up with another apocalypse. 
in the next uh, paragraph. Okay, yeah, yeah. So if we go there, um, right? So then they're asking again if we use Messiah. Okay, we kind of answered that already. Um, he says, I baptize you with water, but what is more powerful than I is coming? I'm not worthy to entice the thong of his house. Okay, so that's kind of where we left off with John's gospel. He says this, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Uh, yes, his wounding forks is in hand to clear his threshing floor to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So again, we have this this image, very much reminiscent of Psalm uh, one, uh, which uh, the the evil is is. Um, ephemeral it, it has no substance to it it just it's it's it melts away in the face of god uh whereas those who uh will stand and be purified well what remains is is this great fruit right uh that bears season uh bears fruit in season and out uh, okay um and so uh this is um more or less where things end for john's public ministry in Luke's gospel because then he runs into trouble with the um, uh, authorities, uh, right? And so those in uh, positions of power, then he's, he's, he's squelched. He's uh, uh, for upholding the covenant, for upholding the law um, with um, marriage and remarriage. Okay. Um, okay. Anything else you want to say about John on that bit? I want to, I'm going to go back to John's gospel here. Um, I think I'll... I think we'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. Sure. Let's okay. Back to John so, um, the, um, uh, the other question that uh, comes up uh, is, uh, well, who is John then? Uh, okay. So we find that he has his own followers. Okay. So uh, verse 35, uh, two of his disciples are there. There's John and, and two of his, they see Jesus walk by and he says, Look, behold, there is the Lamb of God. Okay, and this is an image we see in, in Johannine literature. I'm gone. We're going to see this again in the book of Revelation. Uh, the two disciples, we can see this. Um, and this is where they've, now they begin, Jesus starts uh, dialoguing with them. They're wondering, where is he staying? Come and see is, is, is the answer. Uh, and here we find out this is Andrew, uh, who is, um, uh, going to leave and it, what's what's fascinating is they tell us interesting details about four o'clock in the afternoon when this occurred this this first encounter with jesus i was just come and see uh, and and so here th this is this um overlapping between the two uh before before things part and then jesus ministry is going to uh start up this is not though the end of of, of what we hear from a john in, in the Gospels. So we get a picture here. Uh, this is someone who is definitely preparing the way of the Lord. He has a clear sense that the um, the Lord is about to act definitively in salvation history. And the, the, it's, it's, you know, this event is going to purify the people. It's going to renew the covenant. And it, it's, it's going to usher in a new age. Okay, so that, that's how we see things, and the Holy Spirit and fire is, is going to uh, descend. Let's, let's see again where, where John, we, we hear from John. So if we go uh, into Luke's Gospel, uh, let's go to chapter 7. And as noted, 
when truth speaks to power. Uh, here, this is uh, Herod arrests John, and he's he's behind bars. But it's, he's not cut off from the outside world altogether. Here in verse 18 of chapter 7, he says, uh, when his disciples uh, report, they, they, he sends them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who's to come, or are we to wait for another? Now, that seems confusing of a question, does it not? Um, when we first see John the Baptist, he says, there's a Lamb of God. He says, I'm not worried to untie the thong of his sandal. He's pretty certain this is the one. In fact, um, he baptizes Jesus, right? So this this is... Um, why do you think he has doubts? What would like like it seems like he's he's second guessing himself here almost. Uh, verse twenty. Uh, when the men had come to him, uh, or they just repeat the question, and, and Jesus has just finished healing uh, uh, the sick, giving sight to the blind, uh, cleansing the leopards. Uh, exercising and, and, and giving uh, was it, light. Was that before he healed the cheetahs? <laughs> the cheetahs? He, he cleansed the leopards, I think you mean. Oh, did I say leopards? Well, okay. we'll let the tape decide. Uh, okay, all right. I right. leopards. But. Okay, it could have been uh, through. Uh, okay, but uh, regardless, they're, they're, they're nice. Their manes are nice and uh, uh, flush, lush uh, once again. Uh, and, and, and Jesus concludes that by saying, And blessed is uh, anyone who takes no offense at me. So he's basically, Jesus' short answer here is he's given a description of the kingdom of God. He's given a description of this renewal, uh, which is about to happen when God's healing presence takes uh, uh, place or takes root. All right. So um, then there's a uh, question of Jesus then asking uh you know, why did people go out in the wilderness anyhow? Um, what are you doing? Uh, and so this is, uh, what, what, like, why did John attract all these crowds? Go down to verse 26. What did you go to see? A prophet? Now the prophet, because uh, that's another question I asked John the Baptist, are you the prophet? You prophet yes. And the reason why they're asking him that is that harkens back to Deuteronomy 34, which you kind of alluded to. That's the Mosaic expectation. This is the new Moses. There's, there's a prophecy in Deuteronomy that there's going to be another prophet mm -hmm. like Moses, but better than Moses. That's right. Um, who's going to come one day? And it's not Joshua, because uh, Joshua was like around then. Yeah, <laughs> Joshua's yeah. a mini Moses. He he's he's close. He parts the Jordan, but he's not quite. And he gets into the promised land. Yeah. So there's this lingering promise that one day there will be another theocratic, prophetic ruler in the vein of Moses. It's not, and it's not David either, right? That's a different. Because Deuteronomy also has warnings about kings. It's about the king is not the 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 prophet who's going to rule. So, and, and it's, it's worth noting, this is probably a whole thing in itself. They ask him two questions. Well, they ask him three. Are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Yeah. They can't imagine that the Messiah and the prophet are the same guy. Because the prophecies seem so different. Right? There, there's That's prophecies right. in the Old Testament about this suffering servant. And there's prophecies about the Davidic king who's going to rule and everything's going to be awesome. These must yeah. be two different guys. Yep. Of course, Jesus uh, defies that by being both. Um, but, so, but it shows they're still thinking in that limited... Um, theological interpretation. That's a framework of understanding the Old Testament. Uh, now, with Luke here, okay, there's there's a lot going on, though. Here. Yeah, yeah. Like he's, he's, you know, he's the prophet. You know, the, the, as, as Jesus says, right? When you went out to see a prophet, what did you expect to see? Yes, yes. Some, someone wearing soft clothing in, yeah. in the palaces of kings. Yes. Uh, which sounds very much like the Old Testament prophets denouncing 
the false prophets who, you know, like to say things that appease the rulers you know, so they can get well, clapped. Yeah, and, and that is that is a um, the point that Jesus is driving home there mm-hmm. is also well, who's in the uh, palaces? Well, it's Herod. So one of Herod's um, palaces is in Sephoris. Sephoris is, literally means bird's nest. Uh, and so that's, you know, what Jesus is talking about, um, the Son of Man is nowhere to lay his head. Uh, and he, he, the birds there, like he's, he's referring back to the life of luxury that those in power... Birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't. Right, <laughs> yeah. Anywhere to lay his head. Yeah, so, so this is... Um, yeah, this that's what he's referring to Herod. Uh, he's like dr- driving the most luxurious uh, chariot that any manufacturer can make it's in probably, Judah. It's probably right. too uh, too too generous to call this a school of thought, but there was a group called the Herodians who sort of treated Herod like he was the Messiah. Like look, look yeah. what he's been able to do. He's beautified the temple. Things are going okay under him, right? Yeah. Um, so this, I think it's kind of a shot at the Herodians. Too, right, right. Um, to some extent, but of course he yeah. says no. Uh, John the Baptist was a prophet and more than a prophet. It says in verse twenty. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And if we keep going, verse twenty-seven. Uh, then he says, "This is about the one whom is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you." Now you probably don't have a footnote there, but where does that come from? That sounds familiar. Uh, sounds wh- very much like That's right. Uh, and so. And that's what he tells you. I tell you, those are born among uh, of women, no one is greater than John, yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now that's often a perplexing uh, verse to understand there. Um, how do we make sense of that, um, School and Fawcett? Uh, what, what would you say there? I, you mean the fact that he's the fulfillment of Malachi, or what, what, we'll, we'll come back to Malachi. No, the 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 uh, greatest. Um, sorry, he's he's least uh, in the kingdom of God. Sorry, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Okay, well let's get into this then. Yeah. All right, so John the Baptist is the greatest of the prophets. He's greater mm. than a prophet. Well, yeah. the prophets are the are the Old Testament tradition. Right? Yeah. Now we have the law and the prophets, but even Moses is, as we've mentioned, a prophet. Um, yeah. And really, I think you can make a case that all of the books of the Old Testament are probably written by prophets, including the historical books, right? Are probably prophetic schools. So the law and the prophets, which are summarized in Malachi, like that's the whole Old Testament tradition, and it's got its complete fulfillment uh, in John the Baptist, right? Yeah. Now, when Jesus says no one has ever been greater than him. You have to understand it in that context. He's not saying that John the Baptist is greater than the Blessed Mother or than himself. Right? Yeah. Um, what he's saying is something similar to what Paul, I think, is saying in Galatians. But when he says he's zealous, you know, no one exceeded him in his, in his, virtues, his virtuousness, his, his adherence yeah. to the Old Testament law. That's what it, the point is, is that John the Baptist is the best you could possibly have. He, he embodies that whole tradition yep. from, from, the, from going out into the wilderness. That's why he recapitulates so much of going out into the wilderness and proclaiming truth to power and all this. Uh, and, and, and the fact that he's so apocalyptic. Right. Yeah. Malachi is talking about the end of, as far as they know, the end of time, the end of history. God's yeah. going to come back. And it's going to be the last day. Yeah. Which it doesn't seem to be yet, right? The world's not falling, which I think is why John is sending his disciples. Right. I, I yes. personally yes. don't think John is sending his disciples because he's personally doubting. I think they're doubting. Okay. Because to, John's to, already told them, as we yeah. saw in the gospel, he's like, don't keep, stop following me around. 
Yeah. Now I have a feeling when you're in jail, you have no control over this. Right, right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like he's in a jail cell, and there's still guys clustered around outside. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like Life of Brian, right? Like okay. he keeps telling them to stop following him, and they yeah. just follow him more. Okay. So I suspect John thought, okay, well, if you're going to insist on following me around, okay, do what I'm going to tell you to do now. Go to Jesus and ask him. Who yeah. He yes. Did. Yes. <laughs> and and his answer, Jesus' answer, is one that is not a direct one, like. Um, I am he, uh, is rather, it's, um, he's describing the kingdom of God. Well, it's further than that, though, right? Because it's, it, it goes back to the apocalyptic thing. Because yeah. a couple of chapters earlier, we've had Jesus going into the synagogue in chapter 4, right? He goes up and he reads the scroll, right? Yep. Like, and the first reading from the book of Isaiah, right? Yeah, he read yeah, by yeah. Jesus. And it's, the spirit <laughs> of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news, which yeah. we also saw that John was preaching the good news, like, um, and what's the sign that it's the day of the Lord's favor? Uh, there's been release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and the oppressed have gone free. Yeah. All the stuff Jesus is talking about here. Yeah. Right? And yeah. And well, I just want to point out that sounds a great deal like what's going on in Isaiah chapter 40, right? This is like long past oh, yes. great stuff that's yeah. happening. Yeah. Um, get up on a high mountain and proclaim the good news. Yes. And that's the one that opens by saying there's a voice crying out in the wilderness that this is going to happen. Right. Yes. Right? So. It's, I think, for the benefit of John's disciples, who are still hanging on to him because they're still hanging on to the Old Testament. Yes. That, oh, well, with John, there can't be anything new. It's going to be the end of time now. We've reached our fulfillment. Yeah. No, no, no. There is a new day dawning. There is the Son of Righteousness rising with, heal with healing in his wings. Yes. But you need to turn to Jesus for that. So when Jesus says, no one's better than John the Baptist, he's saying, yeah, under that old order, it has reached its perfection on John the Baptist. And yet, the least in the kingdom of heaven, the little child who's with Jesus transcends that yeah not because of their own works right but just by virtue of the fact that they're the captives who've been set free by and, jesus redeeming and, and drawn into the paschal mystery right mm -hmm. and into the, the cross and resurrection and this this is something completely new um because jubilee because the image yeah. is jubilee which this is the whole thing but yeah. that's that's the liberation right you're free from your debts you're free from your captivity it's nothing you've done you're just free from it now yeah right? and, and an example is that, so you did have healings and miracles happening in the old testament of course we see those um you had jewish exorcists as well uh, but they would use some other name uh usually uh someone famous like king solomon and they'd have litanies long 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 litanies when they're trying to exercise a demon whereas jesus followers simply use the name of jesus and they have the power because this is the kingdom of god which is a a whole new thing uh, is being inaugurated here through Christ. So this is a whole different level between what was before and now what is happening. Um, well, and, and I think it's the same. People sort of have this idea that Paul's saying different things than the Gospels are saying. I think Jesus is effectively saying the same thing that Paul says when he says, I count it all as dumb. Oh, yes, right? like yes. Paul's, I, of course, he's yeah. not saying, like, he doesn't mean it was all intrinsically useless, but compared to the glory that's been revealed to us, compared to the freeing salvation of Jesus Christ, it is all done. Just like John the Baptist is less than the thief on the cross, in, in that sense. Right. Like, right. His, his righteousness. Yes, right, yes. yes. Um, relatively, you know, is not. So if we go back to the question then, uh, to John the Baptist, who is he then? Um, here, I, I think it's helpful. We'll, we'll go to Matthew's Gospel to get this even clearer as an answer. But it's the same scene. In, in Matthew's Gospel, and um, here, like, okay, w w like, who is John then? So if you go down to uh, verse 11:11, uh, 11, 11, and this is the same place where we left off with Jesus saying, uh, 
grace uh, in the uh, least in the kingdom of, great, uh, of God is greater than him or heaven uh, right and then he says um, yes verse 13 for all the prophets and law prophesied until John came so this is the fulcrum and now he says if you're willing to accept it he is Elijah who is to come yes let anyone with ears listen so he does fulfill this role of Elijah which was yeah. prophesied in Malachi even though uh, it seems that John the Baptist himself wasn't fully aware of the role that he's fulfilling at that point. Oh, I, I have a different read on that, too. Oh, okay, yeah, let's hear I, I think it's a bit like when Jesus is at, told, you're the Messiah, and he tells people to shut up. Oh, okay. I, it's not necessarily that Jesus didn't know that he was Messiah. I think it's that the people he was talking to had such an incorrect view of what the Messiah was that he, he almost has to deny it. Mm. Like, he doesn't quite say like I'm not yeah. Christ, but he has to really like shut it. Well, or or when the lady cries out, you know, blessed are you know the breasts that gave you suck, and he's like, well, no, rather more blessed are those who hear the word of God, right? And okay. He's not. I mean, Protestants will say, well, see, he's demoting Mary. Well, no, it's this person's idea of what Mary was was so mistaken. Okay. Or, or when the, when James and John are like, you know, like, can we sit at your right, right hand and your left? Yeah. And Jesus kind of. <laughs> says no but yes it's like right, well, right. In, in one sense you don't know what you're asking for is what he says right right um so i can give it to you but it's going to look very different than what you think i think that's what's going on with john the baptist when he says okay. i'm not elijah what he means is the way that you think i'm elijah is completely wrong-headed oh i don't because, yeah, yeah. because it's not going to be like like you think it's going to be like the book of malachi and it's going to be you know this, this fiery thing and god's gonna get rid of the romans and gonna put you up on the thrones and the new restored kingdom that's not what it's going to look like yeah. Jesus is saying, no, for those who had ears to hear and were really listening to John, he was Elijah. He was issuing in uh, this new kingdom, you know, that I am. Really. Yes, I am the, yes. I am the kingdom. Yeah, right? yeah. For those who had ears to hear, that's what he was trying to point out to you. Yeah. So, so it's like, I, I, don't, I don't believe in uh, the God that you think I believe in. <laughs> or, or, sort of, or yeah. Define, yeah. I mean, you need to do this as a teacher yeah. sometimes, right? Students will ask questions that are... The answer is technically, well, or, or, or it's like Acts 1. Are you going to restore the kingdom now? Is the right. answer to that yes or yeah. no? Well, well, like, no, but yes. Yeah, <laughs> but it, well, there it's, that's the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. Well, sure. Uh, yeah. But well, uh, so is, are you Elijah? Because, who, because who, it, from, it, from, it, from the Bible's perspective, who cares? I'm not here to talk about myself. Yeah. Okay. But what's fascinating, too, is that his apocalypticism is something similar we see amongst the apostles and others because they're expecting this event where God's going to intervene in history, which he does, it's Calvary, uh, or the incarnation, Calvary and the ascension, uh, Pentecost and so on, the Christ event. Um, but they're, what they don't anticipate is a parallel age where the new age dawns, but the old age will continue on in parallel fashion. So now they're both moving together. Um, and so his expectation then uh, or at least certainly his disciples, they have good reason, just like Downing Thomas, to be confused a little bit here because they're expecting this cataclysmic event uh, and they can't see it or they don't, they don't fully see it. And that's why, again, Jesus has to describe the kingdom to them because this is part of the metanoia, which translated in English as repent, but it means a transformation of your mind, your process of thought, your pattern of logic and so on. Um, so they need to be revolutionized, transformed as to how they understand the covenant and God operating. 
So there is going to be fire, uh, which is going to descend. This is just like uh, James and John asking for Jesus to rain fire on Samaria. Sure, yeah. uh, the Samaritan like, it is, that does happen, uh, sure, right? Yeah, so, so not in the way they expect. Well, it goes back to our previous podcast on Pentecost, where I think if you look at Zephaniah, right? Zephaniah says there's going to be a day where there's fire and there's going to be a wind that blows away the chaff. And, I'm, and he's going to wipe out the nations. Right? Yes. So that's fulfilled at Pentecost. And you're like, well, wait, well, nobody was killed there. Yes, they were. A bunch yeah. of people were like, Can, how, do we, how are we saved? And the answer is be baptized, right? Which is a death to self. Right? Yeah. Does, that, that is what that wind, one of the things that the Spirit blows. Oh, yeah, that that's right. It, it's blowing away that, I mean, according to, if we use Zephaniah as a guide, yeah. it's actually, and even here, right? It, there's going to be the chaff and it's going to be thrown into the fire and burned. Well, what happens, right? Fire falls from heaven and it lands on the disciples and it yeah. purifies them. Yeah. And then there's baptisms and people die to themselves and they speak in tongues. And like, yes, the evil is destroyed, but it's not Rome and it's not like, it's not, it's not what they're visualizing of this great apocalyptic war. It's the, the death to self that occurs when we enter into that Paschal mystery of dying and rising of Jesus Christ. The world does end then, right? It is an apocalyptic moment when Christ dies on the cross. Um, but, but you know, people aren't ready to hear that yet. They, they misunderstand what that's going to mean. And John the Baptist is trying to play that role of saying, no, 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 it's, you're, you're getting it wrong. Look at this guy. <laughs> yes. look, at, look at this guy who I'm baptizing, who I'm not even worthy to, uh, you know, saddle him up or, you know, put his sandals on, you know. Yeah. So so if you're if you're catching that, um, what Skull and Foster is saying is, on the day of Pentecost, yes, there were three thousand who were slain. Right? That's right. So, so they were slain. And they were brought into Jerusalem, the, the tomb in Jerusalem, and baptized. Yeah. Uh, right. Brought back to life, brought yeah. back to life again, uh, and that's the revolution of the kingdom of God. Yes. Uh, right. Uh, and, and so that's which John the Baptist points to, but can't achieve. If I can just mention this, I, I am aware we're, we're going to go over three hours. So if, if you booked an hour, an hour, we're, we're going to go over three hours. Well, maybe we can. Three more minutes. It's three o'clock. Okay. Yeah. We're going to go over an hour. Okay. This is going to be another one that goes over. Okay. Jo uh, but Josephus, that oh, you right. mentioned earlier, the, yes. the great uh, Jewish historian, okay, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, who mentions Jesus. Now that may have been tampered with, but he has a section in the Antiquities of the Jews where he talks about John the Baptist, actually. Yep. And it's worth reading. I'll, I'll okay, just let's hear it. right in on that part. Um, he's talking about Herod. Yeah. And um, some people thought, he talks about Herod's army was destroyed. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God as a just punishment of what Herod had done against John, who was called the Baptist. For Herod had killed this good man. Now again, Josephus is not a Christian, right? Yeah. Uh, but he still says John the Baptist was a good man who commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, righteousness towards one another, and piety towards God. For only thus, in John's opinion, would the baptism he administered be acceptable to God, namely if they used it to obtain not pardon for some sins, but rather for the cleansing of their bodies, inasmuch as it was taken for granted that their souls had already been purified by justice. We can call this righteousness. Uh, and then he says, Herod was afraid of the great influence John had over the masses, he was afraid that he might raise up a rebellion, uh, so he thought it was best to put him to death. Uh, and, and then subsequently, Herod suffered, and uh, some people thought that was God's punishment for killing this righteous person. Now, we, we'll get, I, I want to talk about this at least briefly, yeah. the real reason why Herod kills John. Yeah. But I find it interesting that at least the way his teaching was perceived by Josephus, yeah. and I'm not take, I, I don't want to just you know, rag on evangelicals, I was raised evangelical, but it, that kind of sounds like the evangelical view of baptism. It's just oh, yeah. symbolic, right? Like the, uh, the water itself doesn't wash away your sins. What really matters is, did you, you know, did you repent? Have you turned to God? Yeah. And then kind of symbolically you get baptized to make a point about that. Well, that's what John was doing. As Josephus says, right? Um, 
uh, baptism did not uh, part obtain pardon for sins, but was the cleansing of the body. The soul had been purified by justice. That's John's thing. And John openly says, this isn't enough. Like, yeah. What you need is a better baptism. Yeah. So, really so John's, John's baptism is symbolic. Is that, that's what you're saying? Yeah, it, exactly. John's baptism yeah. is essentially symbolic. It, it's just foreshadowing of yeah. what's going to come forward. And that's not, <laughs> that's not what Christian baptism is. And, and I'll just note as well, you know, John's gospel opens by just saying over and over again, John the Baptist was not the light. Yeah. Right? John the yeah. Baptist was pointing to Jesus. Um, of course, the author of the fourth gospel was probably the Bishop of Ephesus. And we, right. know, from, and we know from Acts 19 that Paul goes to Ephesus, and there are disciples of John there who've yeah. never even heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've never yeah. heard of the Holy Spirit. So yeah. Paul's like, well, who baptized you then? Oh, John baptized us. Okay, well, you need a new baptism now. Yeah. And once they're baptized, the Holy Spirit comes down. So it seems like, see, this was to my theory that the reason John sent his disciples to Jesus wasn't because John was confused. It's because they were confused. He, he wanted to help his disciples out. Okay. Because even after John dies, it seems like there are still disciples of John, at least in Ephesus, we're thinking, no, no, John was the, you know, John's baptism was the real deal, and John was, maybe they thought he was the Messiah or something, but they still needed to get the memo that, no, no, John was pointing to Jesus. And in some sense, you can see the whole Gospel of John as being right. an answer, to, you know, an attempt to convert these uh, lingering disciples of John the Baptist, these people who yeah. are still in the Old Covenant, to say, no, no, here's what John was really talking about. Yeah, and, and uh, to, to go run with that a little bit, well, I mean, why would Herod be so affronted um, and, and anxious about this figure in the wilderness? If I mean, maybe he might not be too worried about the theological minutia of, you know, is this a symbolic baptism or not? But think about where he is. He's baptizing at the River Jordan. Now, this is the same place that Joshua crossed with the Israelites into the Promised Land. And so this is uh, them going Which is a new creation image. Right? It's and a new kingdom, mm -hmm. right? Because this is the first time because uh, Israel takes the the back door entrance because it takes forty years yeah, instead yeah. of taking the way of the Philistines, which is like the direct route from Egypt to uh, Israel. They take the back door, uh, and so in coming in, they're then invading Cana, uh, and there this this is Herod might be looking at us. Oh, wait a second, uh, see where they're reconstituting their their lives mm -hmm. uh this is a people are coming back who are going to oppose uh my rule right. and by extension of course rome uh so it wouldn't be uh a number of reasons to be anxious here about who it is mm -hmm. uh and who these followers are mm -hmm. now i want to i have a few closing comments about john but i guess i'll save them for when it, we close because that's when it's most fitting i want yeah. to talk about his his execution yeah okay so, so okay so we know the story uh, oscar wilde made a whole play about this you know salome like this figure yeah. right um herod's stepdaughter you know herod's wife you know his illegitimate wife right uh hates john herod is strangely drawn to john um but you know she finally finds her in he gets drunk one day at a party and his uh, stepdaughter dances for him and he so enjoys looking at her creepy ogling leering dude that he is that he says i'll give you half my kingdom i'll give you whatever you ask for and she has, I guess, no idea. She goes to her mom, and of course the mom says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter, which is the origin of that term in English. And Herod doesn't want to do it, but he's, uh, you know, he's, he's probably got the hangover at this point, and he's, oh, what did I, what did I say last night? No, it's too late. You know, it's on record now, and yeah. that's how John the Baptist dies. Now, I just want to mention, because it's hilarious, Thomas Aquinas thinks that this is a fulfillment of John's prophecy. Okay. Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. 
So Jesus gets put up. That sounds like a dad joke, but that really is how a plank is explained. Okay. Jesus is lifted up and in sort of uh, symbolically extended, whereas uh, John is actually physically reduced. Uh, okay. I've heard, I've heard worse <laughs> Bible commentaries. All right. Uh, but here's what has always struck me since I was a little boy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. What does that remind you of? His decapitation? The whole scene. Oh, the whole scene. Um, well, it reminds me a little bit about uh, Joseph the Patriarch, uh, right? Who who's falsely accused? Yeah, there's, I suppose there's a there's uh, a he's thrown in prison. There's the ruler. Then there's the um, his wife or the Potiphar's wife. Worth, that's worth exploring. But I'm thinking uh, of if you go back to our Hunger Games podcast. Can you think of another? Oh, uh, with with Esther and um, and, and King Xerxes. Right. Okay. So there's a king who's so taken with the beauty of some girl. Okay. He's yes. willing to give half his kingdom. It's the same right. idiom. I never noticed this as a kid. Like, I okay. This, they say the same. I thought this was a thing people just said. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Half my kingdom, but no, okay. it's just like specific. And um, and in that case, uh, who who turns out badly in the story of Esther? Uh, well, it's well. Xerxes looks like a fool well, sure, most of the time. Yeah, uh, but it's Haman the Agagite. Right? Yeah, Haman. Yeah, Haman, the yeah. villain who you know is the enemy of God's people. He's the one yeah. who gets executed. It, here you have that same scenario, but it's the holiest man in the Old Testament order who yes. gets executed as a result of it. What's your take on that? Why? Why are the evangelists uh, or God? I mean, God in His providence setting it up so that there's this parallel between. <laughs> between Xerxes' execution of Haman and Herod's execution of John the Baptist. Because it seems mm. like a very deliberate illusion. Right, right. Um, that's a great question. Uh, part of it, I mean, there's there's a number of ways you could run with that. Um, Esther is called, uh, or Mordecai tells her, you, you'll be called for to a time like this. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the... Mm, importance the 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 demands the of, of the here and now to act under pressure um, I, I think as well there you're going to see the um, they're attempting to dissolve all of uh, the Jews right uh, and so there's actually going to be combat then between the forces of um, Persia and um, or Haman uh, and then the, the, the Jewish groups as well who are defending themselves uh, they go into battle you can see that conflict so if we think of um, Haman uh, in an allegorical sense right representing the opponent uh, the great adversary of uh, of the gospel the covenant uh, we're going to see that conflict that combat unfurl later on as well um, and in, in the midst of all that uh, here you have this uh, this figure. Well, when it comes to John the Baptist, who is proleptic, uh, or he's anticipating uh, what is going to happen to Christ as well, and the whole conflict which plays out on the scene between the uh, the nations or or the the, the rulers, right, uh, the archons. Of, of this world. Go back to our first four podcasts. That's right, yeah, yeah. That. Yes. So the rulers of this world. Which would be like the fallen angels, right? Like the right, right. Who are behind mm -hmm. uh, Herod and, or Haman, right? Either one. Sure, um, sure. And, and so there you're going to see, well, how is this going to be played out? Mm -hmm. So as far as um, the, uh, the, bodily, the bodily concerns there are, uh, well, yeah, their head might end up on a platter. Mm -hmm. Are their arms outstretched? 
on on sure. the beam of a cross. Um, so so I think that's that's playing out in there as well. But you probably have some ideas as yeah, well. Yeah, no, I want to I want to muse on that. The, I, I this still needs working out. So anyone write in if you have. Okay. Yeah. So Haman is okay. So the Hebrew text says he's hung. It's like on a gallows, right? A gallows that was built for Mordecai, but he hangs mm. it instead. Oh, wait, let me cut to the chase a little bit here. There's interesting parallels between Haman and Jesus. Oh, okay. Right? In some ways, like Haman. Yeah. Haman is you know, in the place of Mordecai. He hangs on this tree, and hanging on a tree, we know from the Torah, is yeah. uh, um, Deuteronomy. A curse is you hangs on a tree. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's uh, um, twenty-one. And then in 22. the Septuagint, it, it's a cross. Right? It's a star. Ah. Right? Okay. Like, Haman is crucified, actually. Okay. Um, now, I think then, so right away there, you've got this. You're, you're thinking of Jesus, who's also hung on a tree, who's also crucified. Um, now, this is not to say hey, Jesus is like Haman. It's to say that. Uh, in the destruction of Jesus on the cross, there's a destruction of evil, like you see happening with the destruction of Haman. Uh, just like you see in uh, the book of Joshua, right, when he, he takes the five kings and he puts his feet on their, on their neck and then hangs and kills them and hangs their bodies up, right? Like, uh, in Jesus' death, the whole old order, of, you know, our, our fallen bodies of sin are being destroyed, right? So then, this is a bit roundabout, but it's like, if, Haman, if Haman's death is a symbol of Jesus' death, by associating John the Baptist with Haman, that in a way shows that John's execution is an anticipation of Christ's death. Or that in some sense he's already participating in Christ's death. There's something paschal almost about this execution. It may not be obvious, because it, it's so physically dissimilar to the crucifixion uh, in the way that Aquinas identifies. Yeah. But I, I, I sort of wonder if by way of that connection to Haman, there's some kind of uh, Christological undertone that's going on there or over John. Like I said, this is still yeah, a work in progress, yeah. but... Um, there's also maybe the, the irony that like Herod is now the one who uh, is, is Xerxes. <laughs> now, now there's right. a sense in which like, yes. the Jewish king is in the role of the pagan king, which kind of goes to the whole prophetic tradition of, yeah. you know, Israel has so far gone, they may as well be one of the Gentile nations. Well, because, well, Herod's identity is suspect as well, because if you go back a couple generations, he's uh, Edomite, so he's, he's recently Ooh, Jewish. Who, who else is an Edomite in the Old Testament? Uh, Edomite. Uh, well, sure, there's, a, there's a lot of Edomians, right? They're, yeah. they're, well, they're descended from Esau. Ultimately, right? Yes. Um, and so there's a lot of. Anyways, there's. Well, that's yeah. Right? You know, Haman is almost associated. You could say in some ways. Oh, the Agagites. Okay, yeah, maybe. There's, there's, um, like a, there's like a, I think, overtones there of him being like an Esau-like figure, right? At yes. Cool. So, anyways, I, I I leave that for the viewer, the read, yeah. listener, and for you to chew yeah, off it. But I I think uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you necessarily need the Haman connection to bridge John with Jesus in that sense. Um, in in their uh, Pasch well in, in, in anticipating or participating in the, the Paschal sacrifice, um, but uh, I, I, certainly it helps us to see that um, this is not something which uh, is new, right? Uh, after, after the fall, is that the the gospel. The, the covenant, right, is always going to find this opposition, this uh, between uh, power, right, uh, and our Augustine would put it, uh, our libido dominati, our desire to dominate others, or the pleasures of the world. If we're seeking peace in those two areas, uh, we're always going to run into conflict with, uh, well, we're not going to find peace, mm. the peace of God, the love of God, uh, mm. right, so. Mm. Well, speaking of Augustine, I, let, me, let me say my final thoughts. Okay, sure, sure. As, 
as, as the one who kind of brings the Old Testament to a close, right? He, he appears at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi, and in his own person, he's the end of the Old Testament. Uh, so Augustine has this wonderful thing. We've talked a little bit on the, both on the show and off camera about, off the microphone, about Augustine's sort of epistemology and his Trinitarian. Oh, yes. Uh, okay. we, not a time to get into that now, but basically, if you think about, the, oh, so I'm saying something to you, I'll, I say a word to you, like yes. coffee, and the idea of coffee's in your head, you don't like oh, right. coffee, so you feel a disgust that uh, lingers with yeah. you, even after my voice is gone. Yeah. Augustine says, that's the reason why John the Baptist is a voice crying in the wilderness. So Jesus is the okay. word, right? The word is the, is the concept, the reason. It lingers. It stays in your mind forever, right? Yes. As soon as you learn a new word, right? Like now you have that idea, right? As yeah. part of you in some sense. And maybe you learn that word because someone says it to you, but as soon as they say it, that voice dissipates. Okay. Right? Yeah. And that's what John is. John is carrying a word, and that yeah. word is Jesus Christ. And then once, you know, we've heard that word and received that word, then the voice can go silent. Uh, okay. So this is like the res is the thing, right, or the exactly, reality. Yes. Uh, our words are a signa, yes, uh, right? Yeah, the, the, not even the word. The he's, he's the vocal, like he's the vocalization, oh, the, the, right? He's, he's just sounds. The sounds There's a meaning yes. to it, right? But the sound, the voice can pass and dissipate, and, and yeah. But the word but, remains. But yeah, the res, the reality behind continues on. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's a, that's, I think it's wonderful. Yeah. So yeah. See, sometimes these speculative things are okay, um, and the church has also um, enshrined his wish. Um, to be to decrease as Christ increases because uh, that's the reason why his feast is June twenty fourth. Oh yeah, that explain right around, that well, again that to me. Right around the time of the solstice, right? Which if okay. you don't know, right? That is when the day start. That, that is the day that the solstice it doesn't fall exactly on. They may have got the calculation wrong, but it's very close to the solstice, the uh, summer solstice, the day when the the days get as long as they're going to get. Yeah. The longest day of the year. The sun is out the longest. After that, the days get shorter and shorter and shorter. Yes. Until they finally get to the winter solstice, which is when the days. Shortest of all, the sun is basically gone. After the winter solstice, the days start getting longer and longer and longer. And oh boy, have you ever noticed uh, that happens to be around the time of Christmas? Okay. Uh, December 25th falls right around when the solstice setting is like the 21st or 22nd or thereabouts. Yep. But yep. right around there, Jesus comes, breaks into it, and from then on, as soon as Jesus arrives, the days get longer and longer. Right. He increases. Whereas John the Baptist, he's born. In a blaze of glory, uh, I imagine that's the tradition. There's like a French tradition of having a big fire on John the Baptist's feast day, yeah. for that reason. Right? It symbolizes the light. You know? Yes, uh, yeah. and, and that's why the Quebecois kept it up because they sort of wanted to keep their French connection in the midst of being in Canada under the control of the British. No, here we're going to be French, darn it, and have yeah. our big French fire. Right? Yeah. Sure, have your fire, but then after that, the light starts to dim. He he decreases. The year decreases. The sun decreases as John arrives. It's a beautiful way that the church has kind of um, embodied John the Baptist's own humility. And yeah. that is the ultimate moral for us. My last thought on this, Zechariah's prayer, right? You, my child, shall be called the prophet of the Ah, uh, yes. Well, if you pray uh, the Liturgy of the Hours, you will have that memorized because it's every morning prayer. Yes. Is, is Zechariah's prayer. And I used to wonder this, you know, at, at, at seminary, why, why do we pray this? Like, you know, at the time I'm a... I was a seminarian. I was a single guy. I didn't have any kids. Yeah. Who, who am I telling this to? Well, there's a tradition in the church fathers and the medievals of saying that, like, your child is your soul. Right? Because you're, okay. you're, you're bringing your soul up. You're raising Yes. You, or you read, like, Gregory of Nyssa's Life of Moses. He, he uses yeah. that image a lot. Like, which kids are you going to promote? And, or, yeah. I mean, that's like Proverbs, right? You know, uh. be, be strict with your kids and use a rod on them. They say, <laughs> that, that's really your soul, right? Like, be right. strict with yourself. Yes. You know, it's like the, the child is father to the man, right? Like, you yeah. want to raise your soul up because that's your real inheritance or whatever. So if you're Zechariah, you know, we're in the role of Zechariah. We're praying this prayer. 
he's praying this to his, about his son, John the Baptist. You know, let, he, he's going to bring him up in the fear of the Lord, right? Because he's a righteous yeah. man. We are also, I think, if you're praying this, if you're praying the prayer of Zechariah, and why else would Luke include this? I mean, he's including this for us to pray. Yes. Right? Just like he's including the Magnificat for us to pray, yep. too. Yep, and Simeon's um, Canticle. And Simeon's Canticle yep. to pray at the end of the day, right? Right before we go to bed and symbolically die, right? We pray, yeah. just, you know, Lord, let your servant go in peace. At the beginning of the day, when we're about to make all these decisions and about to make all, all these choices that will affect our soul, we, you know, we're, we're essentially addressing ourselves, like you, my child, you, myself, you, my soul, are going to be called the prophet of the Most High. We are essentially supposed to train ourselves to be like John the Baptist. Right. And right? the choices yeah. we make. Just like we're in the role of Zechariah as being the ones who make the choices. You know, it's almost like who you are tomorrow is the child of the choices you make today. Okay. Right? Yeah. Uh, who you are at the end of the day is the, is the child of the choices that you made over the course of the day. Yeah. So we all are Zechariah and, our soul, and we want our souls to be like John the Baptist. So we pray that at the beginning of every day. Yes. You, my child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High. And we should all be like John the Baptist, you know, preparing the way for the Lord to come into this world and into ourselves, right? Yeah. We should all be humble, you know, whether that means raising up the lowly, right, by raising up the valleys, yeah. or, or uh, lowering our pride, like, like you know, flattening the mountains out. Yeah, yeah. So there's a smooth way for the Lord to enter into our souls, yeah. you know. And giving people knowledge of salvation. Right. right, we're all called uh, to evangelize. Yeah, right? and giving yeah. witness to that. Yeah. And I, I love this idea that uh, is reflected in the liturgical year. So June 24th, uh, connecting there with, with the sun ebbing and flowing, or waxing and waning. And, but also it's six months before Christmas, right? Yeah. So 24th of June, uh, 24th of yeah. December. Yeah. So there's uh, anticipation here of the incarnation and this, this revolution as, as the year goes around. But it, it, mentioning here Zechariah, uh, thinking not on a 365-day scale, but a 24-hour scale, uh, the Benedictus makes sense then mm -hmm. at the beginning of the day when the sun is rising uh, that we pray this as, as setting our child, uh, mm -hmm. praying for our child it, it to be... Um, uh, prophets of, of servants of the Most High, uh, right? Um, and uh, th this dawn shall break upon us, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. so this is that that that's that great uh, uh, cloud that is hung hangs over humanity is death, right? Uh, and that that shadow. Whereas this is breaking in now, uh, uh, this light, and so the shadow of death. Uh, and those who sit in darkness now are are lifted up, uh, and and we can see the res, the reality, the logos who is within us uh, and has come to live and die for us, who's now drawing us out of that, which is what John's own ministry, his whole ministry, uh, was about, uh, and pointing to his spirit, which which guides us uh, onward. And, and we are all still in the last days, right? Like. We're still, as the Lord is coming, right, his second coming, you know, we're still in that role of John the Baptist in some ways. I mean, it's, it's fulfilled, but it's also not yet. Right. Right, it's proleptic, as we've discussed before. Yes. So we, we are, we're in that role, too, of, you know, repent, because the kingdom of God is near. <laughs> and we should yeah. always be living with that in mind, right? Even if uh, we seem a little crazy sometimes. Right, right, yes. And, and the world around us <laughs> as well. So, okay, on that note, um, would you like to close in uh, prayer? Sure. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, Lord, we thank you for the example of John the Baptist, for his humility and his uh, zeal for righteousness. Uh, we pray that we would be like that, uh, that we would always uh, proclaim by our words and our deeds uh, your kingdom, Lord, uh, that we would always carry that out, uh, repenting in our own lives, being content with what you give us, and looking forward to your day of redemption. 
Uh, bless everyone who is listening to us, and may we all carry out the mission you've given us. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As, as it was in the beginning, beginning is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen.